Please be seated. I'm sorry. Uh, Please continue to to remain standing with me for the reading of God's Word. I do apologize. Uh, Turn in the Scriptures to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. This is the text that we will consider in the preaching of God's Word. Matthew, chapter 4. This is the temptation account of our Lord Jesus in the wilderness with Satan. In, this, in fact, the series of temptations. Let us give our attention to God's holy word. Matthew 4, beginning with verse 1, continuing down through verse 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help in the preaching of the word. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. Indeed, O Lord, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce asunder the joints and marrow and the soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Search us, O Lord, by your word. Help us to consider Christ, the one who overcame the devil and all of his temptations, and help us and our temptations to flee the wicked one, to love your holy ways, and to cling to you. Grant us the help of your Holy Spirit, and in all things magnify your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As I said a moment ago, we're turning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, for the preaching of the word this morning, this striking account of our Savior's temptation, really this series of temptations with the wicked one, Satan. There's much, there's much that you and I can learn from our Savior here and his temptation. I wanted to begin this morning by asking you a, a fairly simple question. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love God. What does love for God look like? Maybe an even more profound basic question or simple question is, what what is love? What does it mean to 
to love. You see, our culture today has, has really cheapened and diminished uh, the idea of love. We hear slogans, um, really, that seem to be devoid or emptied of, of meaning at all. Uh, like, love is, is love. Uh, love is often reduced to uh, some sort of emotion or, or sentiment, some kind of feeling, maybe uh, tingling in your spine, if you will. Uh, but it's devoid of any objective reality. And we in the evangelical church are often not much better, are we? Our view of love often is reduced to emotionalism and experience. Now, I'm not diminishing the, the need for holy affections, for love for God. That certainly does include our, our affections and our desires. But brothers and sisters, love, I would submit to you, is much more. What is love and love for God in particular? What does it mean to love God? May I submit to you from the scriptures that love for God is spirit-enabled, wholehearted, trusting obedience. Love is, very simply, obedience. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in this context of the, uh, the keeping of God's commandments and His statutes, God's commands to Israel of old. God gave the, the central commandment of all. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What does it mean to love God? It means to obey Him. In the context there, it's very clear that Israel was to keep God's ways from the heart, uh, to serve Him, to, to hold fast to Him, to fear, to worship Him, to hold His name and His law, His glory in high esteem. Well, that's the Old Testament, you say. Well, certainly it is. And it's applicable for us today, yet holds true, of course. But even our our Savior, Jesus, told us in John's Gospel, chapter 14, remember those words, simple words to his disciples? John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Love is obedience, wholehearted, trusting, spirit-enabled obedience. And here in... Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, we have a living portrait of what this type of love for God looks like. Love that you and I so often fail to measure up to because of our remaining corruption and sinfulness. Here our Savior puts on full display in in the vivid colors of this portrait. We have our, our Savior's victory over Satan, yes, but at bottom this is a, a portrait of love for God. This is what love for Jehovah looks like. This is what it looks like to love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And the the rich colors of this portrait, the the depth and the poignancy of what our Savior endures in the wilderness, we see what it means to to love God. We learn a few simple things uh, from this text. We learn regarding the love of God, that love for God first looks like cherishing His Word above all things in the first temptation. Secondly, love for God looks like trusting His goodness in the second temptation. And then that third and final temptation, we learn that love for God uh, means worshiping Him 
above all. So cherishing his word above all things, trusting his goodness, and worshiping him above all, worshiping him alone. And we'll study the temptation account under those three simple heads, those three simple ideas of of cherishing his word, trusting his goodness, and worshiping him alone. But first, a little bit of the, the context or the background of this temptation narrative. If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, and I would think that many of you are, you know that this gospel is preaching to you and me the glory of the King, the true King of the Jews, our Lord Jesus Christ. The very opening of the gospel begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. Here is the true king of the Jews, the true son of David, the one who will succeed in every way where all the kings of Israel failed. My family and I are, have recently been reading through the, the book of 1 Kings, and there's just failure after failure in the lives of those kings of Israel and of Judah, just one after another. In fact, the narrative says that of of one king after another in a series of them, that they each did worse than the king before them. But here in Matthew's gospel, we have the true king of Israel, the true king of the Jews. And he is the one who identifies with Israel in every way. In fact, you could say this, that our Savior Jesus is the new Israel, the better Israel, the one who not only the, the true king, but the one who, who is the embodiment of all that Israel was supposed to be. And in his life, even in these opening chapters, we see uh, the, the pattern of Israel's history repeated, don't we? Uh, in chapter 2, God calls his son, Jesus, out of Egypt. Remember that he called his son, Israel, out of Egypt long ago in the Exodus. Out of, uh, here in Matthew 2, 15, we read at the end, uh, the, Lord, the Lord saying, out of Egypt I called my son. He brings it as our Lord Jesus has to, with his, uh, with his mother Mary and with Joseph, he flees to Egypt to escape uh, the execution by King Herod. Now he's called back out of Egypt as the, the true son of God and as the true Israel. And just as Israel long ago went through the waters of the Red Sea and the Exodus, Our Savior enters into waters Himself, the waters of judgment in the Jordan, identifying Himself with dirty Israel. As His body goes down into the the water, He he identifies with Israel in every way. And He comes up out of that water and goes into the wilderness. Remember, long ago, Israel came up, came through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness. But here the The pattern diverges. Unlike Israel, who for those 40 years of of wandering, they failed continually to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our Savior, in His 40 days and 40 nights of testing, and then this temptation by the wicked one, He will succeed in every way. We need to understand the setting here in the opening verses of our text. Then Jesus was, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. I love those words. He's, he's been baptized, 
uh, the, at the end of chapter 3, words you, we know very well. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, the voice of the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's been anointed by the Spirit who's descended like a, a dove out of heaven upon him. The voice from heaven has said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now, by that same Spirit, the Spirit sent by the Father, He sent into the wilderness. And He sent... For the purpose of temptation, for the purpose of trial, to be tempted by the devil. Unlike you and me who so often fall into temptation, don't we? Uh, we, we find our way into it. We don't realize when it's coming. We're distracted and sin and temptation comes upon us so suddenly and so easily. Your Savior, Christian, goes to war equipped by the Spirit to take down temptation, to take the wicked one, to enter into his, his realm, to, as it were, declare war on the wicked one, to triumph over the strong man, to bind the strong man and take him captive. No, our Savior does not fall into, into temptation. As one writer says, he attacks it. He declares war upon the, the kingdom of this age, the God of this world who's blinded the hearts of many. Our Savior's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And then those 40 days and 40 nights of hunger. Here, again, the, the Old Testament allusions are rich. You remember that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, remember that Elijah was in the wilderness those 40 days and, and 40 nights of testing as well. And here, our, our Savior, like Moses, like Elijah, and ultimately like, like Israel... He enters his own trial and his own temptation. But unlike all the rest, all those who have gone before him, he will succeed in every way. Don't you love the understatement at the end of verse 2 that after this time of fasting, afterward he was hungry. Forty days and forty nights of no food. Nothing. His body... It, mind and body, no doubt, slowed by, by physical weakness. Our Savior, remember, just as, He's just as human as you and I, taking on our frail flesh, yet without sin. Think of the, the human weakness that He encountered here in this trial. Knowing what, what it is to, to be weak, even to, to be dizzy, mind and body slowed by fatigue and, and, uh, and la- loss of nutrition. No doubt the, the first stage of, of starvation has just begun as, as his body begins even to, to draw on its own tissue, going through this, the, pain, the hunger pains of starvation. And in this hour of weakness, of physical weakness... The, tempt, the tempter comes, the wicked one, the one who is the ancient serpent, the one who tempted our first parents in the garden, the one who, who delights uh, as a lion to devour, as a, the, the prince of the power of the air to deceive, the one who's armed with fiery darts to take down the righteous. So the stage is set for this conflict. So we come to that that first lesson, the, the first temptation, where we see our Savior cherish God's word above all things. In this first temptation, the wicked one comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones 
become bread. And he, the tempter appeals to the, the appetite and the, even the, the physical weakness of our Savior. And not only that, he attacks our Savior's identity and his mission. If you're the Son of God, if you really are, if you really are the only begotten Son of, the, of God, Son of, of the Father, surely you have the power. Surely you're able to use your power to get a little bread for yourself. Surely you can love yourself first. But our Savior goes straight to the Word, doesn't He? As He will every time. Straight to the Word. Every fiber of His holy humanity, weakened as it is by hunger, yet every fiber of His holy humanity, still loving God, loving God's law and God's Word and God's ways. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 here. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 4 here. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He shows us here that to love God is to cherish his word above all things. This is, again, a a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And those verses, you... You'll you'll remember that God has tested his Old Testament people, Israel. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way. Speaking to Old Testament Israel, the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. But unlike, unlike Israel of old, who would murmur, uh, who would complain because of their hunger, who would fail to, in fact, live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, our Savior here subsists on the precious, life-giving word of the Lord. He recognizes that life is more, life is more than food. It's more than clothing. That his life is bound up with communion with the Father. That his life counted on and subsisted in communion with God. Feeding upon the life-giving, life-sustaining, nourishing word of Jehovah. And he rejects this first temptation, this first fiery dart. Of the wicked one, but more, we certainly see that our that our Savior succeeds where Israel failed. But isn't there here in this first temptation? Isn't there an echo of our first parents' temptation long ago in the garden, when that same tempter, the same serpent, comes to comes to Eve and and questions the the word of God? Has God really said and attacks God's word? His Character attacks his promise even to Adam and to Eve. And whereas our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed in a garden surrounded by privileges and comforts, surrounded by every other tree of the garden other than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whereas they, they failed surrounded by privileges and comforts and abundance, our Savior succeeds hungry alone, abandoned in the wilderness. Our Savior cherishes the Word of God 
above all things. This is what love for God looks like in the first place. It looks like cherishing the life-giving, soul-sustaining word of God above all things. But then the servant fires up a, a, second, a second dart, a second temptation, as it were, to take down our Savior if he could. And he takes him even from the wilderness into the holy city, Jerusalem, and sets him, verse 5, on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And again, a very similar attack on the mission and the identity of our Savior. If you're really the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, then put God, as it were, put God to the test. Uh, really show that, that you are the eternal Son of God. Demonstrate His power. Use that power as a sensation, as a, as a spectacle. Throw yourself down. And you see here how the wicked one loves to quote Scripture. He loves to take the Scripture out of context and use it for his own ends. He uses Psalm 91 here. And it's interesting, if you know Psalm 91, the wicked one, Satan, quotes verses 11 and 12, but then fails to continue on in that psalm with verse 13. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot, which is exactly what our Savior is doing in this temptation. Our, the wicked one, Satan, misquotes and abuses Scripture here in this second temptation. There are echoes in this second temptation. There are echoes, aren't there, of Israel's sin again long ago, of their tempta- how they tempted the Lord, their failure, again, to take God at His word, and their desire to, to put the Lord to the test. I'll read a few verses to you from Exodus chapter 17 of the, the wandering and the tempting of the people of Israel long ago. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. You likely remember the narrative well. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you, these next words are vitally important for you to understand, why do you tempt the Lord? And then later in verse 7, Moses calls the name of the place where the people fail here, where they tempt the Lord. He calls the the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You see what the children of Israel did in Exodus chapter 17. They put the Lord to the test. It's as if, maybe maybe a, a, a good way to illustrate this is with you children. I hope this hasn't happened, but uh, certainly it, it can happen. It's happened in my own family, uh, where uh, perhaps you're, you're in the store um, with, your, with your parents' children, and, and you tell your parents, you have the, uh, you, you have the courage to, t- to tell your parents, if you really love me, if you really love me, you would buy that toy. It, 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 you put your parents' love and their affection for you to the test. If you really love me, you would give me this. You see, this is the exact heart of the, the temptation of the people of Israel long ago. Lord, if you really love us, if you're really among us, you'll give us water to drink here. Show us. Give us, give us a sign. Uh, 
Show us a a spectacle. Give us something visible for our senses. You see how they're moving beyond the promise and the word of, of God and asking him, demanding a sign from him. But our Savior is different. Our Savior here in this second temptation, he shows us that love for God means trusting his goodness. It means resting in his word and delighting in his goodness regardless of the circumstances. No brokering deals, no making of of arrangements, no this for that. No, our Savior trusts the goodness of the Lord. Though he slay me, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Our Savior goes again immediately to the word. To this time, a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And puts the second temptation of the wicked one to rest. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You don't broker deals with him. You don't, uh, you don't make an arrangement with him. You don't promise him obedience if he gives you what you think you need. You simply submit to his kind fatherly goodness because you have tasted and seen that he is good. Love for God looks like cherishing his word above all things. It looks like trusting his goodness. But then one final lesson, one final temptation, where we see that love for God looks like worshiping Him alone. Worshiping Him alone. And this is that third and, and final temptation where it's as if the, the devil's running out of, it seems as if he's, he's running out of ideas, running out of fiery darts, and, and tries one last thing and becomes very overt. Very, his, his scheme comes right out in the open here in this final temptation. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You can have it all, Jesus, if you just fall down and worship me now. Give me a little bit of of worship now. You see how this is the exact opposite of the divine plan of God. Remember Psalm 2? The Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. This is the exact opposite. Whereas the plan, the eternal plan of God, would would be indeed to give the Son an inheritance of the nations of every tribe and tongue, a people, a nation. But the way of bringing about that inheritance and bringing salvation to the peoples of this earth would be through the bloody cross, through the path of suffering, and shame, and suffering, and bleeding, and dying on the cross of Calvary. What Satan says here is the exact opposite of the eternal plan of God triune. What Satan here is is trying to maneuver, what he's trying to produce, is, is to tempt the Lord Jesus to grasp for, for honor without humility, to reach for the crown without a cross, to seek exaltation without humiliation, to seek for pleasure without pain. This is a temptation, no doubt, that he tries in all of our hearts, often successfully, isn't he? A temptation that he presented to the children of Israel long ago. In Exodus chapter 32, again, an event from the history of the children of Israel where Moses has gone up on the mountain. They, they don't know where he, where he is and if he's 
coming back, and they ask Aaron to, to make a god for them, to worship. Again, something visible, a visible sign. They, uh, they circumvent, they're circumventing, going around the eternal plan of God, going around his word. Give us something visible for us to worship, and they give their, the worship of their hearts to that object rather than to the one living and true God. But unlike our own hearts, unlike Israel of old, our Savior, what pristine obedience, what flawless, shining love for Jehovah. There's not one thing, there's not one instinct, there's not one motive, there's not one intention in our Savior's heart that would give way to this temptation, even in his weakened, holy humanity. Every fiber of his being pulses with love for God. Again, he goes straight to the word. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Again, quoting the the book of Deuteronomy. You fear, you worship Jehovah alone. Again, every impulse, every instinct in our Savior's heart is for God. For God's glory, God's name, God's law, God's character. He delights in the Father. He loves the Father. And he refuses, he absolutely refuses to give way to this temptation that would, uh, in some way, give him a crown without a cross, give him a kingdom without suffering, to to give him glory without the shame of the cross. I've I've already been hinting at it. But you see here, brothers and sisters, that the, the cross, the cross really is at the heart of all of these temptations. The cross is at the heart of all of these temptations. It is the scheme of the, of the wicked one, of Satan, to keep our Savior from the eternal, if he could, of course he, he cannot, he's bound, and he would be crushed he, in this first battle here, this first encounter in the, in the campaign, if you will, here in Matthew 4, and then later the cross of Calvary. He's trying all that he can to keep our Savior from the eternal plan of God. But our Savior has his face set like a flint on the cross of Calvary. You, see, you hear echoes, don't you, of this temptation account later in, as, our Savior, as our Savior Jesus hangs naked, bleeding, and dying on the cross. As the crowd cries to him, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Remember that the chief priests and the scribes joined in, they, jeering, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. In Matthew, Matthew's Gospel later, chapter 27, verses 40 and 42. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But our Savior remains faithful to to love God, to worship Him alone, to delight in His ways, to cherish His word above all, to trust His goodness, and to worship and fear God alone, to give all glory to the Father, and to follow through with the eternal plan of our redemption. You can also think of the... uh, the encounter that, that, Peter, uh, that Peter has with the, the servants of the high priest as, as Peter picks up the sword, at the at betrayal and arrest of our Savior, even before the cross, and he, he strikes at the servant of the high priest. And our Savior says, no, no, Peter, put your, put your sword away. Don't you understand, don't you know, that I could call more than 12 legions of angels 
But our, our Savior says, I've, I've got my eyes on the cross of Calvary. I will not be turned aside. I will not attempt to broker a deal. I will go through with the eternal plan of God. I will show what love for God looks like by going all the way through to the bitter end. And even in the, the third temptation, we, we see an echo of that later on in the gospel as our Savior prays in the garden. Oh, my Father, if it would be your will, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup of pain and suffering pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And our Savior, in his, even as he anticipates the cross, and then as he hangs naked and bleeding for our redemption, he remains firm to the end. He will not be dissuaded by Satan here. He continues to cherish the precious word of God above all. He trusts the goodness of the Father. He worships and serves Jehovah alone. And he rem his face remains steadfast in securing your redemption and my redemption and in bringing all glory to God. This is what love for God looks like, brothers and sisters. So what about us? What about you and me? Do we cherish the life-giving word of God above all things? Do you? Do you love the word of God? Have you, through the word, tasted and seen that, that God is good? Do you trust his fatherly goodness despite the hard circumstances that he brings into your life? Do you worship him alone? Key way that, that, that this is brought out is in your, your commitment to worship, to worship and serve the Lord alone, to not give your heart to idols. And I'm not talking about the, the idols of gold and silver or wood that, that some might make, but those idols of the heart, remember that John Calvin said, our, our hearts are like idol factories. Do you give your affection to God, your love for God, for His Word and for His ways? Or is your heart filled with the idols of this world, of sexual pleasure, secret sins, love of the world, love of money, love of entertainment? Do you cherish God's Word above all things? Even in the trials and the hardship that God as our Heavenly Father brings into our lives, do you trust His fatherly goodness? Do you refuse, by the grace of the Spirit, to broker deals, to make arrangements with Him, to say, Lord, if you really love me, then you would remove this hard trial from my life? Do you, like our Savior, simply say, Lord, though you slay me, I will trust in you? Like Job long ago, who as well was tested, who was tempted by the wicked one, do you say in the hour of grief and hardship, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you worship and serve the Lord alone? There's also a, a key lesson here, follow, continuing on, there's a key lesson here about spiritual warfare and the way that we fight. You're aware of this war, aren't you? A war that Paul will later... Uh, teach us about in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers against spiritual wickedness in high places and you learn here Christian how to fight against the wicked one how to do battle with with Satan and with temptation how do you do so 
through the precious word of God. You see how our Savior went to the word. His, his instinct was so perfectly attuned to the word of God. No doubt for those 40 days and 40 nights of temptation. He had been pouring in his heart, mind, and soul. That holy humanity, weakened as it is by hunger. He had been pouring in to the precious word of God. The word was his delight. He, in fact, is the fulfillment of what the psalmist said long ago. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. This is the way that we fight, through spirit-enabled obedience, spirit-enabled communion with God, and reliance upon the life-giving Word of God. Christian, do you love the Word? Are you in it, meditating upon it, learning from the example of Christ as the one who has crushed Satan? Do we love God's Word? But more, more than Christ as our example here, though there's much to learn about fighting sin and temptation. One last Lesson, one last application that I will make, and this is most important. Christ here certainly is our example and teaches us how to fight, how to do battle, how to win in spiritual warfare by not on our in our own strength, but by spirit enabled, gospel produced, fruitful obedience. But there's more. Our Savior here is the one who succeeds where we have all failed. As I've said numerous times already. He succeeded where our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed in the garden. Where they listened to the hiss of the serpent rather than the word of God. He succeeded where Israel long ago failed in their wandering and their doubting and their murmuring, their clamor, even as we heard in Sunday school this morning. Our Savior succeeded in every place where Moses and Elijah and all the rest of the kings and the people and the priests of Israel failed. And he succeeds. He has succeeded where you and I have failed. Think about the active obedience, what theologians call the active obedience of our Savior Jesus Christ. The one who was tempted in all points like we are, the book of Hebrews says, yet without sin. The one who is our advocate, the one who is our mediator, the one who is himself our righteousness. The one in his perfect life, those 33 years of holy obedience, earned salvation and righteousness in our place. And then goes to the cross and washes away every stain of our guilt and shame and sin. The one who lived perfectly and died vicariously to bring us to the Father. Christ for me. Christ in my place. Christ's righteousness, not my righteousness, not my obedience, but the perfect, flawless obedience of Jesus Christ here first in his temptation and then all through his ministry. A life lived for the glory of God, showing us what love for God looks like. Christian, this is your hope, not ultimately in your obedience and in your righteousness, but in Christ and Christ alone. And if you do not know him, As your righteousness today, I call upon you to repent. To to not try to earn your way on your own, but to flee from your sin and your self-righteousness. To run to Jesus Christ in true faith and repentance. Call upon His name. Confess your sin and say, Lord Jesus, be my righteousness, my Savior, my salvation. May God bless his word to all of our hearts for his own name's sake. Let us pray. 
Our blessed God and everlasting Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, for this account of of his temptation and all of its vivid colors and even in, in its poignancy, our Savior, Lord Jesus, and your your holy humanity tried by, by the wicked one, hungry and alone, you succeeded. You crushed Satan there, and then in your death on the cross of Calvary, you demolished the kingdom of darkness. You died in our place vicariously for our sins, and in your name we have life and salvation. Lord, I pray that you would seal these things to our hearts, that you would teach us how to fight against temptation, even as we consider you, Lord Jesus, by the grace of your Spirit. But more, Lord, I I pray that we would cling more earnestly to the righteousness found in you, Lord Jesus, alone. Be with any who are outside of, of your gospel, who have not bowed the knee in faith and repentance. Bring them by the grace of your Spirit to confess their sins today, to repent and to cry out to you for the gift of saving righteousness through faith in Christ alone. O Lord, bless your word to our hearts for your everlasting glory. In Jesus' name, amen.